So when you have little kids, it seems like all you do is clean up messes. That's at least how it feels to me. There used to be a time, I like think back about when I was first dating my wife and we first got married. I used to have all these hobbies. It was wonderful. And, and now it seems like all my spare time is spent, you know, sweeping the floor or loading the dishwasher or wiping the sticky countertop that's been cleaned 17 times already in a day. It just feels like all you do is clean up messes. Now, I'm not going to fault my kids for that, right? Kids are supposed to be messy. That's just the way it works. As a kid, I was messy. In fact, some of the most fun things you do involve making messes. So I get it. No fault there. Um, But as I think about my kids and I think about some of the messes they make, especially the little ones, there's one place where most of the messes um, occur, at least to a great degree, and that's centered around our sandbox. Now, sandboxes are great. I grew up with a sandbox. Um, It was fun playing in sandboxes, you know, building castles or digging a hole and having army men there, maybe bringing in some toys. You get a little excavator or a dump truck. That's how you normally play with sand. But... My little kids, they actually choose to do something a little different. They don't play with toys in the sandbox. What they do is they tend to just immerse their whole body in sand, right? They just cover themselves. And if you think I'm joking, my wife actually captured some of this on video. This is a a clip earlier this summer of my daughter playing in the sandbox. Go ahead and check it out. Now, you might think, boy, that's really special that you guys captured that moment on video, right? And for you, it's kind of like, well, that's a really cool thing to document. That's not like a special thing for us to document. That's just Tuesday, right? That's like (laughs) normal behavior in my household. We would experience something like that. So my daughter goes in there, and she eats it, obviously shovels sand in her mouth and just chews on it for a while and kind of spits it out, puts it on her face, puts it in her hair, Puts it in her clothes, right? It's all over her feet and her hands. So when she's done, she's absolutely filthy. And when I'm home with the kids and I'm in charge in those moments, anytime I see her in the sandbox, I have a rule. Once May is in the sandbox, she is not allowed to come in the house after that, right? Not until she's clean because she's dirty. And because she's two and she can't clean herself, that means that I'll end up having to get maybe a towel and just clean her all off. Or I'll get the hose and I'll spray her down. Or usually what I do is I just pick her up like, and hold her at a distance and try not to shake her so she doesn't get through the house. And I just kind of walk carefully to the tub and put her in the tub and then like, you know, take the clothes off there because it just sand just pours out and then you give her a bath. So I usually have to clean her and then she's allowed to be in and play. But I tell this story this morning, not just because it's a fun thing to tell and to show the video, but for a purpose. I want us to think about something. You see, kids are certainly messy sometimes, but when you really stop and think about it, kids aren't the only ones who are messy. Adults can be messy too, can't they? The only difference is that when an adult is messy, it's usually not the same kind of messy as a kid. Usually it's something else. In fact, usually it's something that's far more problematic. Just think about it for a moment. Maybe in your life, you've made quite a few messes in your relationships. Maybe you've made a mess of things with your family, or maybe you've had some friendships that you made some poor decisions in the past, and now there's some brokenness in those relationships. Or maybe you've made just a huge mess in your marriage, and you don't know how to fix it or solve it. Things are just messy. 
Maybe for you, you've made some messes in the past. And some of those former messes, those keep being haunting, like they keep haunting you because they keep resurfacing in different areas of life. And you realize that what you've done in the past is now affecting your present and your future. Uh, For some of you, maybe you've made a mess of things at work. You've really made some really dumb decisions or some poor choices, and now you've got a mess on your hands and you don't know how to clean it up. Or maybe the same thing at school. You've got some problems you're dealing with, and, and things are just messy. Maybe for some of you, right, the mess you're facing is an addiction. Maybe it's an addiction to alcohol or or drugs or even pornography, right? We all have messy experiences in life. Even as adults, we're all messy at different times, aren't we? And try as we may to try to not be messy, right? To to cleanse ourselves and take care of ourselves. The truth is, no matter how hard you try, you're always going to be a little bit messy. You're always still going to struggle with things or dabble with things that just make you unclean. And there's nothing you can do about it in your own ability. Left to our own, we are just messy people. That's the way that human beings are. But see, thankfully, we have a father who knows, who knows us, who knows how messy things can be. And when we're unable to clean up the mess of our own lives, we have a loving, gracious father who's willing to step in and take care of the mess and cleanse us and welcome us in. We have a loving heavenly father this morning, and I want to talk about him today through the pages of scripture. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me as we see this. We're in Mark chapter five this morning, Mark chapter five. If you came here this morning and you didn't bring a Bible, we've got Bibles in front. You're welcome to use those. If you don't own a physical Bible, please take the Bible home with you this morning. We would love for you to have a Bible. And uh, if you want to use that, that's great. If you brought your own, that's fine too. If you are tuning in online, you want to use our mobile app, we've got a built-in Bible there. Whatever works, Mark 5 is where we're at. And the book of Mark, just a heads up, so to kind of give you a little tip, it's in the New Testament. So the last quarter of your Bible, you get to the New Testament, it starts with Matthew, then you have Mark, we're in Mark chapter 5. And as you're making your way there, I want to remind you that we've been in the series called Unclean here at Frankenmuth Bible Church. In fact, we're near the tail end. This is the second to last week of our short five-week series. And if you've been with us, you know that throughout this month, we have looked at the examples of the Bible of how people were were classified or deemed in that culture to be unclean. Remember, we've talked about how there are certain things that people did. Maybe it was a moral decision, but often it was just activity in, in society that would cause them to become ceremonially or ritually impure or unclean for a period of time. So in the law of Moses, which is in the Old Testament, The Jewish people were given a standard for living, and it said in that law that if you ate certain foods, you could be unclean. Uh, The Old Testament law talked about the fact that if you came into contact with a dead body, you would be unclean. If you um, had a skin disease, there were times you'd be unclean. Or maybe you had contact with bodily fluids. You would be unclean for a period of time. And when someone was unclean, there was usually a process by which they could be cleansed in the law. But while they were unclean, people were supposed to keep their distance because the way it worked is if you were ceremonially unclean in that culture, your impurity, if you touched someone, could pass onto someone else. And so in order to keep the whole group of Israel pure, people who were unclean would keep their distance and nobody would draw near to them. Nobody would touch them. Nobody, that is, except Jesus. You see, in the New Testament, we have multiple examples of Jesus encountering a person who everybody else would avoid, someone who was unclean. And instead of keeping his distance, Jesus drew near. Jesus touched them and engaged with them and talked with them in amazing ways. So we had an example of how there was a person with leprosy. Everybody kept their distance, but Jesus touched him and healed him. 
We had a story of a Samaritan woman at a well, a person everybody would avoid, but Jesus came to her and said, hey, give me a drink out of your vessel of water. That's something that would make him unclean, but he asked and he approached her and he talked with her. We had an example last week of how Jesus healed this man's daughter. Uh, She was dead and he touched her, something you weren't supposed to do, but when he touched her, she came back to life. And today, as we're in Mark chapter 5, we're going to see another example of an unclean woman and her encounter with Jesus. Uh, And so if you're in Mark 5, let's go ahead and get ready to jump right in. Uh, As as I just mentioned last week, we talked about the story of Jesus and the, the raising of the girl from the dead. It's a story about Jesus and a man named Jairus. His daughter was dying. And if you remembered last week, if you were here, uh, in Mark chapter 5, it tells the whole story of Jesus and his interaction with Jairus and the raising of his daughter from the dead. But in the middle of that story, we talked about how it seems unique, but in every account of this story, there's another story that's sandwiched in the middle. Uh, And I skipped over that story last week, but I said we were going to cover it this week. There's a story where when Jesus is on his way to this man's house to heal his daughter, He encounters an unclean woman, and he performs a miracle in her life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so our context is really simple, right? If you were here last week, you know it. Jesus is surrounded by crowds. He's making his way to someone's house, and now he meets someone. And we're going to pick things up in Mark 5, verse 24. And the first thing we're going to see, it's going to explain for us, number one, the situation. The situation. What is the situation that begins to unfold, beginning with verse 24? We'll notice what Mark tells us. He says, and a great crowd followed him, that's Jesus, and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under, the hand, under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, as our story opens up, we're introduced to a woman who has a very, very serious problem. Mark tells us that There was a woman in the crowd that day, and this woman had a discharge of blood, it says, for 12 years. Now, I want to begin by saying I realize that there are certain things in our culture that we don't normally talk about because it makes people feel uncomfortable. And what I'll even say is that for guys in particular, right, this is a a subject that we don't normally talk about or have any involvement with because it makes us especially feel uncomfortable. Men, our bodies are different than women's bodies. I'm not going to go do a lesson here, okay? You hopefully learn this at some point in school, okay? We're different. Uh, Women have certain things that they experience that men don't, and often we'd rather not know about it or have any involvement. That's their business. It's private, and we kind of just get uncomfortable, Uh, But you see, this morning, we can't avoid certain subject matter because it makes us feel uncomfortable because it is so important to understanding the text today that we actually need to jump in there a little bit. So what I'm going to tell you just right off the gate is things are going to get a little awkward for a minute. Is that all right? Uh, If it isn't, sorry, well, it's just going to happen. I don't know what to tell you. Now, I'm not too bothered by it because my whole life is awkward, so I'm okay with awkward. Uh, But... In ancient Israel, there were all sorts of purity laws for people, and some of those laws were connected to coming into contact with bodily fluids, including blood. And so what tends to be a private matter in our culture is anything but private in ancient Israel. You see, when a woman in ancient Israel was uh, menstruating, it was a public thing because it would deemed her for a period of time ceremonially unclean. In fact, there was a specific word in Jewish culture uh, at that time, a woman who was going through menstruation, she was called Anita. 
And what that meant was during the time that she was bleeding, she would be unclean, people would keep their distance, and then after that period of time, there was a seven-day ritual process by which she would be cleansed and she'd be entered back into the community. And so that was what they did. It was not a, a private thing. When women were dealing with that, it was public. It had to be made known. They were Anita in that moment. And eventually they could return back to normal. So life for Anita was, was unique, right? It's, for us, we think about just the struggles that women often face. It was exemplified in that culture because it was made public. And they had to do all sorts of things. They couldn't sleep in the same bed as their husband. There were all sorts of processes that took place. Life was just hard for a woman in ancient Israel. Now, that's Anita, but there's another word in Hebrew that classified another type of woman. The other word is called zavah. So if there's a zavah, that's a person who's also unclean. But what happens with a zavah is, is their people who are labeled as zavah, when they're bleeding, it extends beyond the normal period of time. If someone continues to bleed, then they're called a zavah. And after, if they eventually aren't bleeding anymore, they're then labeled again Anita, and they have seven days of purification, and they can be brought back in. But what we're seeing in this story is a woman. The text tells us there's been a flow of blood for 12 years. And so what we're reading in this story is not a story about Anita. We're reading a story about a Zavah. This is a woman who's been unclean for the large portion of her adult life. So what was life like for a Zavah in ancient Israel? Well, let me break this down for you. Their life was affected in multiple different ways. It was affected socially, it was affected physically, and it was affected spiritually. Let me unpack this for you. If you were a Zavah, you would be labeled perpetually unclean as long as you were bleeding. You were unclean. And again, you couldn't keep this private because it affected other people. You didn't want to pass your impurity to them. If somebody found that out, you could be in deep, deep trouble with the law. So you had to make it known. You had to tell people, oh, I'm a Zavah, I'm unclean. You have to keep your distance. You'd have to make that known. People wouldn't touch you. People wouldn't come near to you. People would avoid you. So a Zavah in this culture is a social outcast. A Zavah also wasn't allowed to get married in this culture. They were prohibited from marriage because they were unclean. They were a Zavah. In fact, if a Zavah was already married and then became a Zavah, that the, the Jewish culture, even the religious people, often would tell the man, oh, you should divorce her because she's now a Zavah. So you can kind of let her go and you can get remarried because that's not fair to you. So they would make it easy to divorce a Zavah that was often expected and promoted in that culture. So the social implications of being a Zavah were significant. It was just incredibly difficult to deal with emotionally because you were such an outcast in the society. But that wasn't the only problem. Again, there were physical issues with this as well. Now think about it's an ancient world, an ancient culture. Medicine is much more primitive. And so generally, to be a Zavah in the ancient world meant that you were living your life anemic. You were uh, lacking the, the proper oxygen supply in your blood because you're constantly bleeding that's supplying your organs with the, the oxygen you need. So that meant that often a Zavah was weak, they were frail, they were tired, they were prone to illness. And in this particular story, notice how this Zavah, she tried to find a cure physically to her ailment. In fact, it says that she spent all that she had all the money that she had, it went into trying to find a cure, but nothing seemed to help her. In fact, notice how it says this in the text, that she suffered much under many physicians. 
Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but I'd imagine that if you're struggling with an ailment that people in that culture don't know how to treat, they might try all sorts of things physically to make her healthy, but it just got worse. In fact, she was suffering and and tortured in many ways under that primitive medicine. So her life was incredibly painful and incredibly difficult. And in the end of all this money spent and all these physicians, things didn't get better. In fact, notice what the text says. It was no better, but rather it grew worse. Physically, this woman's life was in shambles. Socially, she was an outcast. I mean, she was absolutely somebody who would be at the end of her ropes, but that's not all. There's also a spiritual component as well. Now, we've talked about this in the series earlier, but life for a Jewish person all revolved around worship. Where the Jewish people believed that Yahweh was their God, they would go to the temple and worship and they'd bring sacrifices. And part of that process included gathering regularly for worship. And so many of the women would gather together. And they would gather together in the temple complex. In fact, there was a courtyard for women where they would go and worship. And so the women would go and do that. But this woman, a Zavah, who is unclean, she is barred from entering the, the temple premises. So she can't even worship the way that she's supposed to. And so spiritually, she's being affected. And not only that, You would think that the community would feel bad for her and pray for her and want to help her and encourage her some way. But spiritually, at that time in that culture, they believed in something called the retribution principle. Normally, if something bad happened, people said, well, they must have done something wrong. They must have deserved it. That was the ancient mindset, which the Bible seems to say, no, that's not always the case, right? The Bible, we know. That's not always true. But in that culture, many of them believed it. And so if a woman was a Zavah, people thought, oh, she must have done something wrong. She must have made God angry. And now she's being punished. Well, she probably deserves it. And so they would have been talking about probably all the terrible things she did. And nobody wanted to help her. Nobody wanted to be near her. So this woman's life was decimated. Imagine what it would be like to be this woman. Suffering for 12 years trying everything you can imagine, spending all your money to fix a problem that nobody knows how to fix. Everybody wants to keep you at arm's length. Nobody wants to be around you. Imagine what her life would be like. And she gets to the point where she does everything she can, and now it's even worse. She's absolutely desperate. She's poor, she's lonely, and she's desperate for help. Which brings us to our next Section. Number one, we saw the situation. That's the situation. This is a desperate woman. And so now what we're going we're gonna to see what she does. Number two, with her desperation. We're going to see the desperation in the second section. So notice what happens as Mark continues and shares the story. So this woman, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made Well, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, as we continue reading that, it's important to remember that a Zavah was not supposed to be in the crowd. They were unclean. They're supposed to avoid crowds. And a Zavah was never supposed to touch a person, right? But this this moment, this woman is in a season of complete desperation. And so she's willing to do whatever it takes. She's putting herself and others in a compromising situation because if people find out who she is, she could be in deep trouble for passing through that crowd and trying to touch someone. 
But she's desperate, and so she makes her way through the crowd to touch the garment of Jesus. But notice why she's even done this in the first place. Notice how Mark, he gives us the whole picture here. She does this because, first of all, she heard the reports about Jesus. Just note that for a second. She enters the crowd because she's already heard about Jesus. Somehow, some way, someone has told her about this man, Jesus, or maybe she overheard it. She's heard how Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God and how it seems as if Jesus is healing people with an authority that's otherworldly. It's divine authority. It's supernatural. There must be something about this man that can do the impossible. And so she hears these reports, but she does more than just hear about them. She believes them. She believes these reports. Notice what she says to herself. She says, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You see, in this story, what Mark is telling us is this is a woman who has faith. She's heard the good news of Jesus, and she believes, and that faith is produced in her action. She takes action to go and touch his garments because she believes that Jesus alone has the power to rescue her of her affliction. And Mark says the moment that she touches him, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Man, I love how each and every story in this series. It tells of the miracle that Jesus performs. And I want you to know that sometimes I read the Bible and it's cool. You're, you know, you're like, wow, what a great thing. Jesus used to do miracles. Do you know that Jesus has not stopped doing miracles? If you're taking a breath right now, if, there are, if there's oxygen in your lungs, that is a miracle. You have a God who's sustaining the cosmos right now. You have a God who if you've come here today, if you know Jesus as Savior, he has done a miracle in your life. You were once dead in your sins and he's raised you from the dead. The Jesus who performed miracles in the past is the Jesus who still performs miracles today. And this woman encounters him and she's changed forever. And if you notice, I think it's just cool to pull this out of the text. In these two verses, we have a picture of the gospel, don't we? Just think about it for a minute. How do people experience salvation? Well, if you think about it, there's a process to this, right? In order for people to receive God's salvation, something needs to happen. First of all, they need to hear the good news of Jesus. They need to hear about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and took their place on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. They need to hear that news. And then they also need to believe that news. They need to place their faith in Jesus and say, listen, Lord, I know that I can't save myself. I want to trust in you for what you've done. And so they respond in faith. And the Bible says it's by grace that we are saved, not by doing good works, not by going to church, not by getting baptized, but by grace you're saved through faith. That's how people experience salvation. But there's a process. Someone needs to share the good news. Someone else needs to hear that good news. And then that person needs to believe that good news. That's the process. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says this. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I hope you know there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved but the name of Jesus. The Bible is very, very clear. It's the name of Jesus alone. It's faith in Jesus alone. That's the hope of the world. Nothing else. And so there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved, he says. But he says, how then will they call on him who they've never believed? And how are they to believe on him who they will ne- they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Do you notice the pattern there, right, how that works? In order to be saved, you need to believe the good news of Jesus. But how will you believe if you've never heard about it? And how are you going to hear about it unless someone goes and tells you about it? 
And then he goes on to say, and how are you going to, someone going to tell you unless they're sent out to go do it? This is the pattern. And I say this and I share this because in our story, right, this woman hears the news of Jesus. She believes it so much that she takes action and touches Jesus and he restores her because she's desperate. Now let's look at our world. Let's look at our neighborhood. Let's look at your friends and family members. How many people do you know right now are desperate? I bet you there are a lot because these are desperate times. So what are you doing about it? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have this amazing gift, this treasure you've been deposited with, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Are you holding it to yourself or are you actually going out and sharing the good news with desperate people to say, hey, I know that right now things are hard, but there is a God who loves you, who died for you, who's made a way for you, who offers you hope and life. Are you sharing that news? Or are you going, no, I'm just going to, you know, that's my faith. It's private. I'm not going to give it to them. Like, that's their thing. What does the scripture say? The scriptures are clear. As followers of Jesus, we are the messengers. The, the Great Commission says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. The Bible tells us to go all throughout the world and to tell desperate people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that there is hope for them in Jesus. As a church, this is our task. This is our calling. And my hope and prayer is, man, that we would not be passive people who'd sit back and watch the world in a desperate condition and go, boy, that stinks, and just keep the good news to ourselves. Who are we? Man, we are the church who's been empowered and commissioned by the Spirit of God who lives within us to go out into the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus so that people might hear and believe. I've shared about this in our, our, our series sent last fall, kind of a vision series. And we talked about the fact that our church has grown numerically. There are more people here. In fact, uh, today, I think this morning, first service, I think was our largest first service ever in the history of the, the church at this building. It's great. Great that we're getting more people, but you know what? I don't want to see our church grow just by addition. God has called us to multiply. If we get bigger buildings and more people and bigger buildings, who cares? If we go out into the world and say, listen, there's a hope that I have. It's the hope is Jesus. And we proclaim that good news and the good news spreads and multiplies. That's what God has called us to do. That's our mission. That's our task. FBC, oh, that God would give us a heart to multiply in this community so that we some in all these regions around us and Millington and Vassar and Bertrand and Clio all around this region would know, they would hear and know and believe the good news of Jesus. That's what he's called us to. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so here in our story, we see an example of this. A woman hears the good news. She believes the good news. And she experiences this amazing transformation. And so now that we've seen, number one, her situation, the situation. And we've seen her in, number two, the desperation. How she acts on that faith and she touches Jesus and he heals her. The third thing I want to talk about now is the investigation. There's an interesting turn in the story, the investigation. Notice what Mark says as he continues. We're going to pick up now in verse 30. Mark says this. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him 
the whole truth. As our story continues, Jesus realizes that the power of healing has just left his body and went into this woman. Now, what's interesting here is this story of an unclean person being healed by Jesus. It's unexpected, right? Because normally the process was an unclean person, if they touch someone, their impurity would pass to them and that person would be unclean. But see here, this is Jesus. The opposite happens. Instead, when she touches him, she doesn't pass impurity to Jesus. Jesus passes his purity and power through his body into this woman, and she is restored. It's amazing. And so Jesus realizes what's just happened, that power has left him and healed this woman, and immediately he begins a search. Where is this woman who touched me? He begins to look around for this woman. Now, I always get a kick out of every time in the Bible, it happens pretty often, that God is looking for somebody. Because it's God, right? Like in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sins, he says, where are you, Adam? Like, God could know where everybody is at any point, right? Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? I can go to the end of the the mountains or the depths of the sea, and you're there. You know where I am. But yet, there are times in the Bible where God is looking for people. I always get a kick out of it. I imagine Jesus playing hide and seek as a kid. Like, he must have crushed everybody, right? Because he's Jesus. But here, right, you also remember that we can get theological about this. He's, He's fully God and fully man, right? And so we know that That Jesus has the power, divine power to do the impossible. He can do anything, but he also is fully man. And as we read the scriptures, there are times where he self-limits. He gets hungry. There are times where he's tired. Uh, There are times where Jesus is sleeping. He's taking a nap in a boat. And there are times where he doesn't know things. He's looking for this person. And so he's looking for them, but why? It still seems kind of strange, right? He's just healed somebody. That's already been done, so why is he looking for her? Why is he still looking? Even the disciples, they're kind of like, hey, Jesus, uh, dude, the crowds are massive. I don't know why you're asking about this girl. Like, a lot of people touch you. Who cares? Let's just keep moving on. But notice how after they say that, Jesus still keeps looking. Now, Mark abbreviates our story. It is a very succinct story. No doubt there's a lot more to it, but we just get the short version of this. But nevertheless, Mark wants us to know that Jesus kept looking, even after they said that. He's still looking about for this girl. Why? Why is Jesus needing to find this woman? Well, it's because of this. Jesus is not just in the business of dealing with problems. Jesus is in the business of dealing with people. He's in the business of actually encountering people. He doesn't just want to meet our needs. He wants to meet us. That's what Jesus does. He wants us to have an encounter with him. Jesus doesn't just want to be a cosmic genie who we rub the lamp and he gives us things. No, he wants a relationship with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him. That's what he desires. And in our story, this girl, she's zealous, right? She is zealous in her pursuit of finding a cure. But Jesus is just as zealous in his pursuit of finding this girl. He wants her. He wants an encounter. And so in her story, he looks for this woman. He's on a mission, but the problem is she's nowhere to be found. And why is that? Well, probably because the text tells us she's scared. She's just seen the power of Jesus, and she's she's frightened in this moment. Mark tells us this, that she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why did she do that? Well, she knew what had happened to her. She knew what Jesus could do, and it's intimidating. But also, she's probably a little fearful because she's just passed through a crowd and touch someone. She's not supposed to do that. And the fact that she's confessing this publicly, that puts her in a compromising position, and so she's fearful in this moment. But nevertheless, she tells the whole truth. 
And so now at this point in the story, we've seen, number one, her situation, the situation. Number two, we've seen the desperation. Number three, we've seen the investigation of Jesus. And the fourth thing I want to hit this morning, number four, is the restoration. The restoration. Notice how our story ends. It says, and he said to her, daughter, I love that. Notice the language. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, in our story, we already know that she's been healed. Is Jesus being redundant here? She's already been healed of her disease. So now he makes this pronouncement. Why? Well, notice specifically the language that that Jesus uses. He says, your faith has made you well. It's faith that healed you. But what's interesting here is the actual language in Greek, it's more ambiguous. The word made you well, like we think about health, and it's true, that's happened, but it's ambiguous because the word can also mean save. And depending on the context, that's often how the word is translated. And so here, yes, she has been healed, but at the same time, Jesus reiterates this and he uses an ambiguous word. He says, your faith has saved you. Because you believe in me, you've experienced salvation, which is suggesting that in the text, she's not just being restored physically. She's not just being restored socially so she can go back to normal life, but she's also being restored spiritually. Her faith in Jesus has brought her into right relationship with God. It's saved her. It's cleansed her from from within. And so it's a story not just about cleansing impurity, In a ritual way, it's a story about a cleansing of sin in the heart. By faith, she is saved. And I want you to know that Jesus alone has the power to save. Jesus alone has the power to save. And the truth is, we are all unclean as we stand before a holy God. If you don't believe me, read the first couple chapters of Romans. It reaches a climax and it says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can meet the standard of God. We've all fallen short. We're all messy. We're all unclean. And because of that, we don't have access to the Father. Our sin keeps us away. It's far too messy. And so for many of us, we often think in our head, man, uh, I've done so much wrong in the past. I've made so many mistakes. I've made such a mess of my life. How could God ever accept me or love me? In fact, I'll even just throw this out. There may be people here today. You've come, you're tuning in online, and something was compelling you to come, but there's something within your mind and heart that tells you, I'm never going to be good enough. I'll never be enough. If anybody knew my past, they knew the things I've done, nobody would ever accept me, especially God. Maybe that's been your experience. And for some of you, maybe you've tried really hard to hide your sin or even to cleanse yourself. You do good things. You try to work on stuff. You try to read your Bible here and there. You come to church as much as you can. You try to be a good person. No matter how hard you try, there's nothing you can do. You're still messy. All of us are unclean before a holy and righteous God. But see them. Scriptures tell us this amazing news that despite our impurity, despite the fact that we're unclean, we have a God who is loving, merciful, and gracious, and he sent his one and only son to die 
in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could have the righteousness of God, which means that when Jesus hung on that cross, all our messes that we've made in life, those were poured out upon Jesus. He endured our messes. He got messy in our place. And God punished sin in that moment. And his son, who died for us. And after dealing with the mess of sin, the Bible says that Jesus, he rose from the dead three days later, and he's now alive, and he's offering us new life by grace, through faith in him. The Bible says that through faith in Jesus, we no longer have to keep distant from God. We can be restored to that relationship. Through faith, we're no longer unclean. As Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, through Jesus, right? When you trust in Jesus Christ, he says this, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus pays the penalty for our sin and we place our faith in Jesus, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. That's what the Bible says. That those of us who walk unclean before a holy God We're cleansed from within. God looks at us. He no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, by faith. And therefore, the author of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, I'm trying to tell you this morning that if you're here today and you're thinking, man, God will never accept me. Nobody here will ever accept me. No, no matter what you've done in the past, there is a God who loves you, who can cleanse you through faith in Jesus, and he wants to welcome you with open arms to himself. There is a loving father out there who loves you. Despite what you've done, he still loves you anyway. Just know that no matter what you've done in the past, God's grace is greater. It's greater than your sin. In fact, the big idea this morning is just really simple, but it's this. God's ability to save is greater than our capacity to sin. There is nothing, nothing that you can do that can, that can be beyond God's ability to save. Because we have a God who's offered his only son to cleanse you, to wash you, to declare you clean. And to welcome you into his family with loving arms. So my question this morning is, do you embrace Jesus? Will you embrace Jesus? Despite your imperfections and impurities, will you embrace Jesus? You don't need to live at a distance. Draw near to God. Draw near to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Follow Jesus with your life and take comfort in the fact that God's ability to save is greater than our capacity to sin. Will you trust him? Will you trust him with your life? And will you live a life not bogged down by guilt, not bogged down by shame, but a life of freedom and hope? God's ability to save is greater than our capacity to sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you just for a strange story that we often just gloss over. But how in this story, there is such a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of salvation and restoration. And Lord, I realize that for many of us, and myself included, there are so many times where in my pride, in my self-righteousness, I may not feel like a desperate person. And so I may look at this story and go, oh, look at that woman. What a great story. That has nothing to do with me. Lord, help me by your spirit realize the true desperation that I have. I am desperate for you.
We all are. All our righteousness is just worthless in your sight because it's insufficient. It's insufficient to save. And so, Lord, help us to cling in desperation to your son, Jesus, to grab a hold of him by faith, to believe in the power and purity of Jesus, which cleanses us and washes our sin away and help us to live a life of freedom and forgiveness. And so, Lord, just I pray for each and every one of us in the room, Lord, there might be people right now who are in a desperate situation who might have come to the point where it's, they're at the end of themselves and they've realized that they've made messes in their life. I pray, Lord, that you would take this truth of your word and take your spirit and that you would just prick their hearts and help them to understand that in their desperation, there is hope. Draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, I don't have the ability to save, only you have the power to do that. I pray that you would rescue people today in this place. That they would believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. That they would confess with their lips and believe in in their heart that you raised him from the dead and they would be saved. I pray for that this morning. Lord, it's not about raising a hand or repeating a prayer. Lord, it's about faith in your Son, Jesus. So do the work that only you can do. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.